Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you looking to get started in spoon carving? Do you need some guidance purchasing your first plow plane? Does the topic of plain iron camber confuse you? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 32 of the show for August 15th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank our new patrons, Jay Darenthal and Sebastian Beckman. Thank you both for signing up to support the show. And thank you to all of our patrons for your continued support. If you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once a month patron only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So not too much going on for me lately. Uh, The astute astute listeners among you. Uh, might realize that I kind of skipped a week there with the uh, podcast. We were, uh, my family and I were were on vacation. We were down in uh, Orlando for a week and then came back and had to get some things tied up and buttoned up with the house. So uh, I'm kind of a a week behind on the podcast, but we should be able to uh, pick it back up now that we are back. Uh, You might have seen my post, my blog post on uh, inspiration from unlikely places. It was a Basically, a post about a what I will call a Chippendale style. It wasn't really a, a reproduction of of anything. It was a prop more than anything uh, in one of the uh, attractions down at uh, Epcot. But it was interesting. It was it was actually a pretty well done piece for a, for a prop. They uh, paid attention to some some nice details, and uh, I might end up making a piece similar to that. Uh, at some point, but uh, if you haven't seen that post, check it out. It's a it's actually a pretty nice little piece that uh, the the designers put together there at Epcot, even though it's just a uh, just a prop. But anyway, we are back now, so let's get into our questions. Our first one is from Bill Elliott, uh, and he's sent in a voicemail. He's got a question about workbench leg tenons. Bob. I'm building a Nicholson-style workbench and am using five-and-a-half-inch legs, which were given to me, and thus I'm using them. I'm wondering about whether to draw bore the rails into the legs or simply glue the tenons, considering the size of the leg, five and a half inches, I'm a little concerned about trying to drill a draw bore hole all the way through the leg, and it bothers me that I'm not sure I can get that straight and accurate, so should I go ahead and persevere to get the added strength of a draw bore pin on the rail of the workbench leg, or should I just glue it and be done with it? Your thoughts on that would be most welcome. Thank you. So thank you for the voicemail, Bill. Um, my opinion would be definitely to go ahead and draw bore them. Unless you 
intend to take this thing apart at some time and you want to, you know, you're looking to make um, tenons that you can remove, although, although you did say you were going to glue them, um, I would absolutely draw bore it. Here's the thing. You don't have to drill all the way through that five and a half inch thick leg. Really, all you need to do is get through, obviously, the front of the mortise, the front wall of the mortise, get through the tenon, and then get about an inch um, into the back part. So let's say, you know, your front shoulder is, I don't know, just for argument's sake, let's say it's a, an inch, your front shoulder, and then let's say your tenon is an inch and a half thick. So you're at two and a half inches. You only need to get about, you know, a half inch to an inch past that, uh, past that tenon for your peg to get into. So maybe, you know, if you went another inch, so you're about three and a half inches. So instead of drilling through five and a half inches, you really only have to drill about three and a half inches. Um, and that's perfectly fine. In fact, I believe, um, I did that when I, um, when I built my current workbench, I, I don't, remember if I, I drilled the pegs all the way through or not, but I know I've done that before, even if I didn't do it on this, this most recent workbench, um, where, you know, you don't have to drill all the way through. You just have to get through the tenon and into the back part of the mortise, uh, you know, a half inch to an inch or so just to give that peg something to bite into. Um, and that's it. Uh, and so you should be fine. If you put the, um, drill through the, the front of the mortise and a little bit into the back of the mortise and then go ahead and mark uh, your tenon with the offset and drill through that tenon, you should have no problem whatsoever. Um, you know, like I said, I I drove through a three and a half inch in, uh, leg without a problem. Um, you know, once you get that bit started straight, it should, it should go pretty straight. So I wouldn't worry too much about it, but I would definitely go ahead and draw bore and I wouldn't worry about drilling through the entire five and a half inches. Our next question is from Hugo Belargin, and he wants to know, can you talk about the tools needed for spoon carving? It seems to have become a trendy thing, but not all of us know the essential tools to get or where to get them. So I am far from an expert on, uh, on spoon carving uh, or the, the tools for that matter, but uh, I, I have carved a couple, so... I'll give you my limited experience. Um, I don't have experience with all of the different tools out there. In fact, I have my experiences with a very limited selection of, uh, of tools. Uh, but the good thing is that more and more really good tools are coming on the market because more knife makers, uh, more spoon carvers and knife makers are making their, their tools available for sale. Um, so it, it you know, it's just a great thing that it's becoming, quote unquote, the trendy thing, because um, it's giving those of us who want to get into it and give it a try more options. Um, so I'll, I'll start with where I started out. Um, and and there's there's several different ways that you can do this, right? So um, there's the, the traditional, I guess we'll call it the Swedish way, where you would use, um, you know, hook knives to carve the spoon. But you can also carve spoons just with carving gouges. You don't necessarily have to use um, use knives. If you have, um, you know, a selection of gouges, out candle gouges, like carving gouges, you can actually use gouges to carve spoons and, and just carve them right in your bench vise. Um, so um, that's an option as well. You know, you can carve them from dry stock just by 
roughly sawing out the blank um, and using a gouge to carve the bowl. And you can use chisels and spoke shaves to uh, carve the outside part uh, of the bowl. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, lot of options. But if you're looking to get into sort of the Greenwood way um, that we, we see most people doing it and demonstrating these days, you're probably going to want to go with uh, knives. So I started out with the Mora knives, um, and Mora is a is a Swedish company. They make a lot of different knives, not just carving knives and you know for spoon carving, but um, you know just everyday carry type of knives as well. So pocket knives and, and belt knives. Um, the knife I started out with was a, a Mora One Twenty, which is a two and a half inch blade, um, and I used that for a little while, but eventually I I bought a Mora 106, which is a long, bit longer blade. They're both Sloyd-style knives. There's, that's what you would call a Sloyd knife. Um, they're very basic knives. They're very inexpensive knives, 20 to $30. Um, the 106 has a three and a quarter inch blade, whereas the 120 has a two and a half inch blade. And I prefer now that I've used them both, the 106 with the three and a quarter inch blade. I just like the longer blade. Some people like the shorter blade. So, um, you know, it's up to you, whatever you can get, you know, to, to try them out. And that's what I use for my straight knife. And I still use that. Um, the other knife I bought, um, and I, I don't remember, it's like a 162 or 164 or something like that. Um, it's the, the really... Um, the really tightly curved hook knife that Mora makes. And I carved my first couple spoons with that knife and, uh, it works. It's, it's not the greatest. Um, you know, the bevel needs a little bit of work. Um, it takes a little bit of practice to, to get used to the knife, but it comes sharp. Um, and it does in fact work. Um, but there are better hook knives than the, than the Mora. Um, and again, I haven't used all of them, but um, I do have a, a pair that I bought last year um, from a gentleman uh, named Del Stubbs. He's a, been carving spoons for decades um, and selling knives, spoon carving knives, for probably just as long. Um, he runs a website called Pinewood Forge, um, and he sells all kinds of knives for spoon carving. Um, and I have two of his knives uh, of different sweeps. One is a, a little gentler sweep. One's a little bit tighter. Um, and they are absolutely brilliant knives. Um, so I would highly recommend uh, knives from Dell Stubbs if you are able to get them. Um, I'm sure he ships worldwide, um, but he is located in the U.S. So if you're in the U.S. or Canada, it's probably your best bet. Um, there are other makers. And again, I don't, I'm not going to mention them. I, I hate to leave them out. Um, but I haven't used any of their products. So if you look through uh, some of the more popular spoon carving um, blogs, folks who do this stuff all the time, Peter Follinsby has plenty of recommendations for good spoon knives. Uh, David Fisher, Jared Dahl, um, you know, these folks do this every day and they've got lots of recommendations for knives. So do a little bit of research, read blogs from those people, um, and and just you know check them out on Instagram and see what types of tools they're using because these folks that are carving spoons all the time, um, they you know they rely on their tools. 
So definitely uh, check them out and, and look for what they recommend because they're way more knowledgeable and have way more experience doing it than I do. Um, the other thing that you might want to look into is a, is a hatchet. Um, you can saw out spoon blanks with a handsaw or with a bandsaw, but a lot of folks uh, doing it from Greenwood start with a hatchet. And again, there are a lot of options. You can go with, uh, you know, used hatchets. You know, a hatchet is a, is a pretty basic tool. Um, I have a, a Grand Spores Brooks uh, carving hatchet and I really like it. Um, you know, but there's no reason that, you know, you need to go out and, and spend $200 on a hatchet if you're not sure you're going to enjoy it. So, um, you know, certainly look into, look at eBay, look at old tool sales. There are lots of hatchets that you can use for, uh, roughing out the shape of a spoon. Um, so, you know, and again, the, uh, the folks that do this stuff all the time, you know, the, the Jared Dolls, the Peter Follinsbees, the Dave Fishers. Look at the stuff they're writing and putting on Instagram. Um, and look at the tools that they're using. They're going to give you a good idea of you know what's good. Uh, Robin Wood, there's another. Robin Wood and Jojo Wood. Check out the stuff that they're doing and the tools that they make and sell, uh, as well as the spoons that they carve. Um, you know, Great products there, and they're going to have recommendations for... Uh, for tools as well. So check the, check out those folks. They're going to have a lot more knowledge on the subject than I will. So our third question comes from Ed Savinsky. Ed wants to know what's the best hand tool to make a recess in a box to accept an eighth inch bottom. Would it be a plow plane? Uh, so, yep, I, I think you're talking about the groove that you would use to put a bottom in a box or a drawer or something like that. And indeed you are correct, Ed, you would be looking for a plow plane. It's a pretty simple plane. It's designed to cut grooves along the grain. Typically has a fence. You can find, in rare occasions, you can find models with fixed fences. More often what you're going to find is a, a model with an adjustable fence so that the iron can be positioned in multiple um, positions along the board. There were drawer bottom planes that were made um, at where you, you know, the, the plane was designed to cut a specific size groove, a specific distance from the edge of the board. And that's all it was used for. Um, but more commonly, what you're going to find is a plane with fence rails and a sliding fence that will allow you to adjust where that uh, groove is made on the board, how far from the edge of the board. And usually there's a, a set of blades that comes with it. So you can make uh, grooves of different widths, depending on the size that, you know, the piece that you're making and the size of the piece, the panel that's going into that groove. So, yep, look for a plow plane. And that leads us right into our fourth question, which is from Jay. And Jay says, I'm trying to decide on a plow plane to purchase and have looked at the Veritas metal combination plane and small plow plane. I've also investigated antique and new wooden plow planes, and I find them beautiful and intriguing. At my beginner's level, which plane would give me the best chance of success in the near term? Is there a better choice for someone who's more experienced? Do you use a plow plane? And if so, which one? Also, what do you think of the Veritas combination plane? I understand that it's essentially a plow plane that has depth stops and knickers, which the small plow plane does not. So for the most part, all plow planes are going to have a depth stop. Um, the Veritas small plow plane included. Um, there, but there are some differences between the, 
the Veritas small plow and the Veritas combination plane that I'll talk about in a second. What I currently use is a record 044, which is a, it's a fantastic antique plow plane. You can still find them. They're very common uh, on eBay and the antique tools market. They were a plane made in England, um, but they're just fantastic. There is actually no Stanley equivalent to the record number 44, um, but it's just a the 44 is just a, it's a great size. It's a basic plane. It just comes with, you know, a selection of plow plane blades. It doesn't do anything else but plow grooves, but it does it fantastically. It's just a, it's a great little plow plane. And in fact, I believe the Veritas small plow plane is actually based on the record number 44 because it was just that popular of a plane. Um, and it was just that good and that successful. So um, if you're you know into antique tools, definitely look into a record number 44. I also have an antique wooden plow plane, um, which it also works really well. But they can be kind of finicky to get tuned up. In a lot of cases, when you buy the antique wood plow planes, they come with one blade, um, <clears throat> which is fine if, if all you need to do is cut quarter-inch grooves, because that's usually the blade that ends up staying in them most of the time anyway. But if you're looking for a plane with a set of blades, unless you buy uh, an antique wooden plow plane that's matched with a set, uh, you might have a hard time finding a set to fit that plane because the tapers on plow plane blades are not consistent from set to set and maker to maker. So um, typically a set of plow plane irons was matched to a plane. And if they get separated from that plane, you can't just take any old set of wooden plow plane irons and put them in any wooden plane. They don't fit. They don't, don't necessarily match up with the skate properly. And um, because of the difference in angles, they may not wedge properly. There's things you can do to get around it, but it's easier just to avoid, um, you know, antique wooden plow planes that don't have the matching set of irons with them because it can be, it could take you years to put together the right set of irons to match and fit your wooden plow plane if it doesn't come with a full set of irons. So I'd avoid it, um, you know, unless until you get a little bit more experienced and you, you understand what to look for with um, with old wooden plow planes. I wouldn't recommend an antique wooden plow plane as your first as your first plow plane. I would probably go with um, either a new plow plane or an antique iron version from Record or Stanley or one of the other popular makers. In terms of antiques. Um, the record 44 that I mentioned is a great plane. If you want to go a little bit bigger than the record 44, uh, a record number 50 or a Stanley number 50, which are basically the same thing. They would also be good choices. Um, those tools actually will give you beating capabilities as well, similar to the Veritas small plow plane. Um, they have fences, they have depth stops. Um, you know, and, and they have an additional skate, a moving skate that goes on the fence arms that allow them to function as beating planes as well. Um, and the the 50s are not too, too complicated, and they are still fairly common. So uh, you can find them for a decent price, and you can usually find them with their full set of blades as well. And the nice thing about the records and the Stanleys is that the blades are interchangeable from one plane to another. So if you get one that doesn't have a full set of blades, you can still buy a set of Stanley blades on eBay or whatever, and they're going to fit your plane, unlike a wooden plow plane where 
the blades that you get off eMay may not fit your your plane. So the Record 44, Record 50, or Stanley 50, those are three good options uh, to look at if you want to look at used uh, antique plow planes. If your mind is set on new, again, the the Veritas small plow, I think, would be a, a fantastic choice. I actually, it looks like a great tool. I have, I have my eye on one myself. I'd actually like to, uh, to get my hands on it. So the Veritas small plow plane would be a great choice. Um, you could also go with a new wooden plow if you're intrigued by them. There are some folks that are making new wooden plow planes, and you know this way you'd be assured of getting a matching set of irons, and the plane would already be tuned up and set up, so you should be in good shape there. Um, in terms of the combination planes, the, the main difference between the Veritas small plow and the Veritas combination plane, one, the combination planes are going to be bigger. The body is bigger. The fences are bigger. Um, it's just a longer plane. It, it, it has more heft to it. Um, and it, so it is quite a bit bigger than the small plow, but it'll also do more that, you know, uh, combination planes, they will claim to do rabbiting, dados, tongue and groove, beads, reeds, fluting, uh, all kinds of things like that. And the Veritas version will also take the blades from the old record and Stanley combination planes, uh, like the 45 and the 55. So that will allow the, the Veritas combination plane to do sash work, uh, and complex moldings as well. Now, with that said, I'm not a big fan of the combination planes. I used to own an old Sargent combination planes, very similar to the Stanley 45. Um, the Stanley 55 style or the record 055 or whatever the number was for that one, um, they're just absolutely nuts. They intimidate me. There's just too many parts, too many things to misplace, too many things to get set up and aligned. Um, I'm sure the record, the, the Veritas combination plane is a great tool. Uh, it does claim to eliminate a lot of the setup and fussiness um, that the Stanley 45 and the Stanley 55 style planes had. Uh, because those tools were fussy. Like I said, I had the Sargent version um, of the combination plane that had the, you know, the beading blades and the tongue and groove blade and the rabbiting blades and, the, you know, the, the sash blades. And man, they were, they were just a, it was just a, a finicky little beast to, to get set up and dialed in. Um, and for things like beading and sash work and moldings, you just don't have a lot of support. You know, you've got two skates and that's just about it. You don't have a whole soul profiled soul to support the iron of that plane in use. So what ends up happening with the combination planes is that unless you're using super perfect dead straight grain, well-behaved wood, you tend to get a lot of chatter and tearing and, and just issues with moldings, cutting moldings. They're great plow planes, but if all you want is a plow plane, there's no reason to go to the extent to get a combination plane that can do so much more when you can save money and just get a plane like the Record 40, uh, 44 or the Stanley 50 or Record 50 that was essentially just meant to do plow plane work. Um, I don't like them for cross-grain work. Yes, they do have knickers, um, but when you're cutting dados or cutting rabbits cross-grain, um, you really want a skewed iron, and these planes do not have a skewed iron. They just don't do that well across the grain, so um, I wouldn't recommend them. I'm just I'm not a big fan of combination planes. Um, 
you know, I, I prefer planes that are dedicated to a specific task. There are folks that swear by the combination planes and they, they say they can get them set up and, uh, and do great work with them. But for me, they're just too finicky. They take too much time uh, to set up. So I, I would just rather have a dedicated plow plane and then use you know a dedicated rabbit plane and dedicated molding planes and dado planes for those tasks and just use my plow plane for plowing grooves. Uh, I might make an exception for you know, like the, the number 50 or the Veritas small plow to try and do a little bead, a little bit of beading with that plane. But again, you're going to have to play around a little bit because, um, you know, you don't have a mouth and you don't have a soul. There's no front of the mouth on those planes and there's no soul. So, um, you're going to have to make sure that you're working with a really well-behaved wood in order to do some beading. Um, if you do decide to try and do a little bit of beading with one of those planes, uh, either the, the Veritas or the Record 50 or Stanley 50. Um, look up an article on the Ver- the beating with the Veritas small plow plane by uh, Derek Cohen. He did some experimenting with it and came up, you know, found out a good way to kind of solve some of the problems that, um, you know, the, the, the old beating, beating with the 50 and the, the Stanley 50 and the Record 50, um, had that had to do with, you know, tear out and and things like that. And it had to do with the way he sharpened. I think I I haven't read the article in a while, but he did do a lot of quite a bit of research on it and tweaking with the plane. So um, if you do decide to get some beating blades for your plow plane, give that article a look. It's it's definitely well worth a read. So that's going to do it for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is all about camber on hand planes. What is it? when to use it, how much to use, when not to use it. So let's get into it. So a lot has been written about camber on hand planes in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, But sometimes it it can be kind of confusing, especially if you're new to the craft and you don't quite understand what the whole point is. So what is camber? Uh, In simple terms, camber is a, a curved plane iron. So if you have a plane iron for a bench plane, like a, a smooth plane or a jack plane, you know, Stanley number four or number five, um, that iron will typically come with an edge that is ground straight across. When you buy a new bench plane, that plane is going to come to you with the iron ground straight across. Well, why wouldn't you just use it that way, sharpen it and use it that way? Well, you certainly could. Uh, And if you're going to do edge work with that plane and only edge work with that plane, I would keep it ground straight across. But if you're going to plane wide faces of boards, if you're going to plane a tabletop, if you're going to plane a board, any board that's wider than the width of the plane, if you use an iron that's ground straight across, no matter how shallow a depth of cut you make, what's going to happen is the corners of the plane iron are going to dig into the wood. They're going to cause little micro tears if you're if you're uh, taking a real fine cut. If you're taking a rather heavy cut, they're going to t- cause some big tearing. Um, and essentially, we, we call that plane tracks. It, it leaves these scratches, these tracks in the woods where the corners of the iron dug in. 
So to solve that problem, we add camber or a curve to the edge of that iron. You can do it in, in numerous ways and depending upon the degree of curve or camber that you're going to put on that iron, some ways are better than others. Um, so, but the, uh, the whole point, the whole idea is by putting a very gentle curve on that blade, you pull the corners of the iron out of the cut and you end up taking a shaving that's, uh, tapers in thickness. So it's, it's thickest at the center of the iron, the, the shaving is, and it tapers off to nothing at the ends just before the corners of the iron uh, engage. And the whole point of that is so that the shaving feathers out at the edges uh, so that you don't get tearing and you don't get plane tracks. The question arises, how much camber do you really need? Um, and unfortunately the answer varies and, and is it depends um, now I use camber on these days I use camber on two of my planes I used to use camber on three of my planes and I'll explain in a second but I use camber on any bench plane that is going to work on the face of of a board um, either camber or, or easing the corners. I call it all camber, but I'll explain the, the main difference in a, in a second. So essentially, my smooth plane, my jack plane, and my jointer plane, or my triplane, depending on, on how you want to call it, um, all three of those have camber to varying degrees. Um, my smooth plane has the least, and in fact, with my, with my smoothing plane, I really only relieve the corners very, very, very slightly. I mean, you, you really couldn't measure it. You can put a good precision ruler or straight edge up to the edge of the blade and see a very small amount of light at the corners where they're not cutting uh, when you take a really fine shaving. But other than that, the blade is pretty much ground straight across. It's just a very minor relief on the corners of the smooth plane. These days I do a similar thing with my joiner plane, and that's because I'm only using one joiner plane. Um, back when I was using mostly wooden planes and, and doing uh, pretty much all of my work by hand, I still do most of it by hand, but um, I had two separate joiner planes. I had a, a triplane, a true triplane or trying plane, and that plane had a true camber in it, that blade. So it was a full gentle curve from corner to corner with the, the center being the deepest. And that purpose of that trying plane was to flatten surfaces and also square edges. And I used that camber to my advantage to square the edges of boards. And then I had a jointer plane, which was similar to the, um, to the triplane in terms of the, the size of the plane itself. It was about the same length, but the blade in that plane was ground straight across. And that plane was not used for planing the faces of boards at all. It was only used for planing edges, for jointing edges that were going to be glued together in an edge joint so that I could get an absolutely flat glue surface. That's the only thing I ever used that jointer plane for. For faces and for squaring edges, I used the trying plane with a cambered iron. Now these days, I'm using just a single iron-bodied um, jointer slash triplane. And I use it for both faces and edges. 
face work and edge work. So for, for using it on faces, I have the corners eased sort of like I do with my smoothing plane, except they're eased just a little bit more than my smoothing plane iron. And that's again, so that the corners don't dig in when I'm flattening the faces of boards with the triplane or joiner plane. For using that board on edges, however, I still like to have a straight iron. So instead of ground, uh, grinding or, or honing a camber on my joiner plane iron, um, the iron is straight and the corners are eased. And that allows me, again, to use it on faces and to also use it on edges and get a nice straight um, flat edge for edge gluing uh, when I'm making wide panels. What it does not help me with is squaring up the edges uh, because I still like to use a cambered iron for that. So in that case, I use my jack plane to square the edges. Um, and that has a true cambered iron. So the question then becomes, how much camber do you use? Again, it comes down to how you're going to use that plane. If you're going to set up a plane as a traditional four plane, for example, um, or jack plane, you would grind a fairly significant camber into that iron. So what's fairly significant? Well, the old text said that you, you know, you would basically take a shaving about the thickness of an old groat, which is a, an old English coin. So if you can imagine the thickness of a coin, like a, a, you know, like a penny or a dime, that's about the thickness of the shaving that you would be taking with this plane. Pretty thick, probably close to, you know, somewhere around a 16th of an inch, maybe a little bit less, about a millimeter or so thick. Um, it, it's a good thick shaving. So in order for you to be able to take a shaving that was almost a 16th of an inch thick, you would have to grind the corners of that iron back pretty far. And that's what I did with my traditional wooden foreplane, is to grind the corners of that iron back quite far. The problem arises, you know, a lot of people talk about radius. Hell, what radius do you put on that blade? Um, radius is all well and good when you're talking about identical planes. If you're plane, if you if you have a Stanley number five and I have a Stanley number five and I tell you the radius that I put on my iron and you put the same radius on your iron, then you're going to get the same result. However, if I have a 17 inch wooden four plane with a two and a quarter inch wide iron and you have uh, you know a, a small jack plane junior jack plane or something with like a an inch and three quarter uh, wide iron or a two inch wide iron and you put the same radius on the iron of your plane that I put of your iron that I put on mine the depth of cut is actually going to be different on them because of the width of the iron and if you then get into different bed angles for the plane, things get wildly crazy after that. So I don't like talking in terms of radius for camber. It's, again, it's a, it's a good way to think about it if everybody uses the same type of jack plane or the same type of plane um, with the same width iron. But if your iron widths are different, which of course everybody's are, um, it starts to get hairy and, and radius is not a good, good way to go. So instead I like to talk about the depth of cut. So again, for a traditional four plane, I'm looking for something that's going to cut 
you know, somewhere around a sixteenth of an inch, maybe a little less than a sixteenth of an inch at the center of the iron. That's about the maximum that I would want that iron to project. So if I project that iron a sixteenth of an inch at the center, the corners should be just barely buried in the in the stock of the iron, in the stock of the plane. That's how much radius I put uh, on a traditional four plane. On my jack plane these days, I put a little bit less than that. I'm, I'm a little bit more careful um, with the camber. And again, it's because I use my iron jack plane not just for rough work, taking off a lot of wood really fast, but I also use it for squaring up the edges of boards like you would with a triplane. So the amount of camber that I put in my iron jack plane these days is more on the order of about a 32nd of an inch of projection. Um, so it's about half probably of, of what it would be in a traditional wooden four plane. Uh, on a triplane, a traditional wooden triplane, you're talking about much, much less. Um, I, I don't even know. I, I really couldn't measure. But essentially, you want that full camber. Um, it's going to be less than a four plane, less than a jack plane, but a little bit more than your smoothing plane so that you can remove the troughs, we'll call them, that are left by the jack plane. But it's all relative. It's all subjective. Uh, there's not really a good way to measure camber. Um, so I, I try to avoid it. Uh, I'm going to do a couple of videos on, on adding camber to plane blades, give you two different ways to do it uh, pretty soon, I hope. I know I've been talking about it for a while. Um, but I'll show you two different ways, and, uh, and we'll, we'll kind of show the difference between um, jack plane camber or four plane camber and tri plane camber in those videos. And again, for my smooth plane, it's just a straight, straight iron with the corners eased. Now, as I mentioned earlier, those are the only planes that would get any type of camber at all. If a plane is not going to touch the face of a board, it doesn't get any camber. Joinery planes, rabbit planes, dado planes, plow planes, um, what else? What am I missing? Shoulder planes, anything like that. Dead straight irons because they're for creating joinery, so no camber. So when we talk about camber, the only thing you should be thinking when camber is mentioned is a bench plane meant for using for use on the face of a board. Now, if you want to figure out how much camber to put on your own plane, here's a, a tip that I'll give you. If it's a plane like a jack plane or a four plane, take the iron, color the back up by the edge with a magic marker, uh, black or, or navy blue, something like that. Put the iron in the plane and project the iron evenly from the bottom of the plane as deep as you want that plane to be able to cut at, at, at its maximum. So for example, uh, using my earlier example, if it's a four plane or a traditional jack plane, let's say you project that iron so it sticks down below the sole of the plane about a sixteenth of an inch. Then you're going to take a, a scribe. You can use the little scribe from uh, like a combination square or an awl or whatever. And you're going to run it along the sole of the plane and mark the plane iron at the two corners where it comes through the sole of the plane. Take the iron out and draw a smooth curve from those marks at the two edges of the plane meeting at the very edge in the center. 
And that is the camber that you're going to grind on that particular plane iron. Now, if it's something that's going to get less camber, there's an even easier way. You don't even need to measure it. Um, if it's, it's like a triplane, a traditional triplane, as you're honing, hone that iron, hone the, hone the straight edge of that iron. Then move your finger to the right of center, um, you know, about a third of the way between center and the corner of the blade, and make 10 strokes or, or five more strokes of the, of the, uh, on the stone. Then move your finger to the right a little bit more and make 10 strokes. Then move your finger to the right all the way over the corner of the blade and make 15 more strokes. Then do the same thing on the left side. Move left of center one third uh, of the distance between the center and the corner and take five strokes on the stone. Then move another third of the distance between the center and the corner and make 10 strokes. Then move all the way to the, the left corner and make 15 strokes. And you're going to do that. And that is going to establish the camber that you want for a triplane. You'll do that on when, on your, uh, your coarse stone. Then you can do that on your medium stone to hone the edge. And then you can do it on your fine stone to polish the edge. And that's going to give you about the right amount of camber for a, uh, a triplane iron. It's going to allow you, it's going to be much less than the four plane. It's going to be a true camber and not just a easing of the corners. Um, and it will allow you to, to take a, a greater, it, it'll allow you to, to remove the troughs made by the four plane or jack plane, um, without the, uh, corners of the iron digging in. It'll give you a fairly nice flat shaving, but the corners of the plane iron won't dig in. Then for your smooth plane, Hone as usual, but instead of doing what you did for the triplane, just put your finger right out to the corner and just hone those corners off with some extra pressure right on the corners. Do it twice, one on each corner, and, and you should be good to go. That'll ease the corners of that smooth plane iron back. Uh, it will be almost no camber at all, but it'll be just enough so that when you're taking a super fine shaving, the corners of the iron don't dig in. That is... The amount of camber that I put on a jack plane, uh, triplane, and a smoothing plane. The one difference being that the camber on the jack plane and the smoothing plane, or sorry, on the triplane and the smoothing plane, are put in just with the stones. Whereas with a, a four plane, I will grind the camber on the grinder first and then hone it because it is a significant amount of camber. So the easiest way on a four plane is to actually grind that camber in. Um, and then hone hone that bevel after the camber has been ground in. So I hope that helped to clear up some mysteries around camber if you uh, if you were maybe not so sure. Uh, if not, you know, again, keep an eye on my YouTube channel because I, I am, I swear, going to get some videos out on camber um, in in the near future. Hopefully, in the very near future, uh, we'll just have to see how things go. So that is going to do it for this week's show. As always, thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. And as a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Re just record a voice memo on your phone 
and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com or you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. You can also use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. And if you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you'll find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt032. In the show notes, you can find any links that I refer to in today's show. You can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do all those things in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.